לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed of the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Jamet, currently in an Ottoman prison in Jaffa, Israel. And joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shechter Day School of Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, somewhere on the west side of New York City. Uh, Elliot, do you remember? Do you remember, remember that movie, Midnight Express? In a Turkish prison. You are technically in. Technically. Technically, although... If, if they want if they only had it this way, you know, it would be yeah, a big day in it. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, we want to thank everyone for joining us. We, and, you know, before we begin, we've got to say, we're checking the stats. We're, 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 we've got at least 150, maybe 200 people watching us all over the world. And that's pretty amazing. You know, we, if we keep growing like this, we're going to get to, I don't know, 250 by the end of... The decade. <laughs> we'll have to find a bigger studio. Indeed. Okay. I would be remiss if I didn't say that this is an amazing Parsha. Parsha Naso. Naso, we are in the second Parsha in the book of Bamidbar. But in addition to being the second Parsha in the book of Bamidbar, it is the longest Parsha of the entire Torah. Uh, I have the statistics here. It comes in at... Uh, it is... 2,264 words, the longest of all of the parshiot, 176 psukim, and we will talk about that shortly as to why that is, what, what constitutes the biggest part of this parsha. But before we get to that, we have, to, we have some important material in this parsha. First of all, some, some unfinished business of last week, namely the, the, the tasks of the various Levitical clans. As we know, the Levitical the tribe of the Levites was divided into three Levitical clans, Kahat, Gershon, and Merari. Last week, at the end of Bamidbar, the Torah tells us that Kahat, their function was to be to the maintenance of all of the sacred vessels. Uh, we have Gershon, the textiles, Merari, the beams and the wood. So you have a, a picture of these three Levitical clans uh, transporting all of these things, and this parsha really tells us later on in the parsha exactly how they're to do this. They're to cover this, and they're to put. They get they get uh, special animals and and wagons to to transport this. All of that, which is uh, fascinating in its own right. Uh, but we want to move on to some other items that are important in this parsha. Namely, we have the sota and the nazir. The sota which we would define as the, um, the, the suspected adulteress, and the Nazir, the Nazirite, the person who dedicates himself, herself, to the service of God through uh, both restrictions in uh, cutting hair and also in uh, 
drinking certain liquids. So let's talk about the sota. First, I'm going to turn to you, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski. Sota. Well, you know, first of all, um, it's definitely one of the weirder parts of the Torah. I think modern people, it, I mean, you, you, you look at it and it looks like something like a trial by ordeal. So here's, so here's what goes on. The, the man is seized by a, a, a ruach kinah, a spirit of jealousy. And I think that the Torah is speaking about um, a kind of uh, madness. He's jealous and he suspects that she has been unfaithful. But given the nature of this particular kind of transgression, there's no witnesses. So he is, he is caught in a uh, uh, trap between his own jealous rage, but his inability to prove it. And she's telling him that she didn't do it. And so he, is, uh, he takes her to the temple. There's a kind of potion, uh, the dust of the tabernacle, plus the, a curse is written out and the, and the ink is blotted off the paper or parchment or whatever into the water, mixed with the, the dirt of the tabernacle. She drinks it. And if she is uh, guilty, she, she hears the, the curse that is given. If she is guilty, some spectacular, uh, terrible thing is to happen to her and she, her guilt is out. And if nothing bad happens to her, she's proven innocent. So it looks like a trial by ordeal. It looks kind of, um, you know, strange, primitive or whatever. Strange, certainly. Um, I think it is helpful to often think about the Torah, some of the legislation in the Torah, something that you might, and this being a prime example, something that you might look at and say, oh, this is terrible. How can the Torah legislate this? I think it's often helpful to think of something as a reform as opposed to a perfect kind of legislation of what we want. So I'm going to interpret the Sota ritual in the following way. Men, they're, they're, they're typically more powerful than women in this patriarchal society. And he, he suspects her of adultery. Maybe he's going to do something terrible on his own vigilante authority to this, to this woman who worries him. So instead, the Torah says, you can't do anything on your own authority. You have to take her to the public institution. You're going to take her to the to the tabernacle, you're going to turn her over to the um, to the priest, and the priest is going to do something which very likely, um, it, it could result in her exposure to guilt, but it very likely will result in, in her being proven innocent, and you can put this back together again, as opposed to destroy it terribly. Now, maybe that's, maybe that's a kind of generous interpretation, because um, because you know the way the rabbis tell this story in in tractate so Todd, like she's she's really kind of abased she's kind of you know her, her hair is messed up this this is in the torah too her hair is messed up and her her shirt is taken off and so she's exposed to nakedness um it's not lovely it's not doesn't seem gentle or nice uh the way the rabbis the, way the rabbis tell it but i think that the point of what is going on is to restrain what might otherwise be like really despotic or violent impulses of this husband caught in rage and force him to do so in an orderly, like legal manner, turning it over to somebody who's got more power than he does, that is, that is to say the priest. And That's then if he's lucky, she's proven innocent, and then she's promised that they will have a new child together. So in other words, it, it channels, I learned this word here in Israel this time. I, I, I was asking someone, how do you say to channel something? That is to channel your anger. Lita'el, lita'el from ta'ala. It's fascinating. So, so there is a ta'al, a, a ti'ul here, a channeling of the the 
the um, irrational, the rage, the, the zeal of the, the suspecting husband, uh, channeling that into an orderly uh, set of rituals here. I just want to add one, one point, and, and I, perhaps you could speak to this, or Barry, you could speak to this, that, that you have here echoes of uh, another betrayal, and that is a betrayal that took place at Mount Sinai. Maybe you want to talk to it and see if if you can, you know, establish the the parallelism or the similarity between uh, Ma'amad Har Sinai and the betrayal of Klai Yisrael there and the Sotah. So uh, that that might be a Jeremy point, but I'll get Barry in on this. Barry, you want to go? Yeah, I'll go. But before I go, I wanted to add one point that it's important i think to keep in mind in addition to the the points that jeremy raised that the ritual in part is designed to restore a lack of trust which once trust is broken it's very difficult to rebuild it and i you know what you said jeremy is that this protects the woman who might end up dead by the act of her husband, right? The jealous rage, I think you implied at least, if not thinking it outright, might kill the woman in this jealous rage. But the solution from a nonviolent point of view would be divorce. Um, in the ancient world, certainly that was the grounds for divorce, was adultery. And I think that the ritual is in fact in place in part because the husband doesn't quite want to get divorced, that perhaps there is something left in this relationship that can be repaired. And I think part of the bizarreness of the ritual is to suggest that when trust is broken, God help us. We, and that's what the ritual is designed to do. It's God who's going to tell us that the woman is innocent or guilty. And this in part, I think, is what the ritual sota has in common with the golden calf. The golden calf, I think, in the Torah and in later Jewish writing is the great sin of the Jewish people. And it is a betrayal of God. And the remedy, in part, was for Moses to ground up this golden calf into dust and force the people to drink it. Mix it with water, yeah. Mix it with, right. Uh, yes, very important. Very important point. Um, yes, you can't drink gold dust without a little bit of water. To the gold dust solution. Yes, uh, and I think that this is echoed in the Sota, where the the drink also is composed with something that is ground up or something that is literally ground, as, as Jeremy said, and. You know, I, I don't know how often we think about betrayal. We've all been betrayed or betrayed others, not necessarily on such a grand scale in the course of our lives. We do things that we, we shouldn't do. Sometimes they're more innocuous than others. And it is hard to figure out what to do. And it may be that ritual is the only way to get past it. So that, again, it channels all of that and 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 uh, enables a um a process of reparation for that okay so for that we move to the nazir the nazir which is a, a really extraordinary individual within the structure of the torah we have a few examples of nazirim in um in tanakh 
Namely, Where we only have two, though, right? We have two. I think there's two. Well, uh, Shmuel is Shmuel a Nazir or Shmuel's Nazirish? In Nazirish, yeah. It's and, so Nazir light. Is that what you're suggesting? And Shimshon is the which it's by the way for for this week. Shimshon is the is the real Nazir. But it's funny because Samson Shimshon is uh, he's like a tremendously you know interesting character. But there's nothing about him that's like reverent and devotional. Like, you know, num numbers numbers portrays the Nazir as, you know, somebody who's really, you know, doing this to to make a vow to God, um, and Im implies that there's a kind of reverence and spirituality to it. Shimshon is, with the exception of the fact that he doesn't drink, he's like a drunken bull. Like he's always getting into scrapes. And and he's getting in trouble. He's a wild man. He's a wild well, man. Well, what's interesting though is that Shimshon and Shmuel, to the extent that he is a Nazir, are both Nazirim by birth. Yes. Right. It was not their choice. So it could be that they are the polar opposites. That not everyone can do this, but if the person doesn't have a choice, it really puts a tremendous burden on them. So and, yeah. I was going to say. So what the Torah is really telling us is that that. There are individuals like this who, who you know, to use this word, that need to be channeled in certain directions. They, you know, there are people that that have excessive zeal or excessive uh, desire for pious behaviors. Um, what do you, what do you do with such a person? Uh, so, you know, I think I think it's I think it's really interesting that, as a general rule, um, rabbinic Judaism is moderate. It likes discussion. It doesn't like eccentricity that much. It wants everybody to behave in really, you know, common, uh, common meaning like held in public, you know, uh, possession. We want to behave in, in, in the ways that we all behave. We'll kind of be the same. And, and uh, it's very suspicious of zeal. Um, and the Nazir, you know, I, I think like a little bit of zeal um, you know, brings a little excitement to religion. And I, like, if everything is just sort of, you know, moderate, middle-of-the-road stuff, it's a little boring. And, and the Nazir does bring us a little bit of excitement. Somebody who says, you know, for, for 30 days, which is the standard Nazarite vow, or it could be longer. And some people are Nazarites to their lives, as, as, as one of the Rav Cook's famous followers of David HaKohen, the Nazir Yerushalmi, um, was a Nazarite for the rest of his life after he took his vow. Like they're they're kind of religious nuts, and they bring some excitement because they take it so intensely. A little intensity, a little intensity is good. A lot of intensity is is Not a good. little ragged. Yeah. Right, but the ritual again at the end of the Nazirship suggests that it's difficult for society to control the Nazir. The Torah does what it can to put some constraints on the Nazir. You have the limited term, and you know there are. Uh, it's always interesting. They bring, they have to bring as a sacrifice at the end a chatat, because the Torah is not entirely comfortable with the actual impulse that led to becoming nazir. But while you're talking, Jeremy, I was thinking about if we have this concept of nazirut in our own day, and I think in a lot of situations we see, and not just in Judaism, that people tend to show a certain deference to people that they perceive to be more religious than them. And very rarely do we see the 
for a Brent person, the, the zealous person deferred to the one who is less zealous. And I'm reminded there's this curious story of a prominent Orthodox rabbi whose son had a different standard of kashrut, so he wouldn't eat it in his mother's house, which seems to me to be wrong on all sorts of different levels on one hand, but on the other hand, we tend to say it's okay because this person is more pious. And so we let that person be more pious when maybe what we should be saying is that this person is more pious so should lessen perhaps his or her piety to be like the rest of us. Right, so it, it, it leads you to the question of what do you, what do, you do with such a person? Do you, do you honor and revere that person for their piety or do you try and at least marginalize and neuter them? And, and I, think, I don't think there's- We're really, waiting for uh, you to tell us. I, yeah, well, I'm gonna just say there's no clear cut answer here, obviously. You know, a little, a little bit, a little bit of each is totally necessary, right? Like, if you, at one level, the beauty of a halachic system, we all should behave, you know, in a similar way. We should all, um, you know, share common norms. And and if I really choose to observe kashrut in such and such a way, but it causes, you know, it destroys shalom bayit, it, it destroys kibud avahem, it's an insult to my parents. You have to say, listen. It's not about you, it's about us, and this is how we do it. And in a different moment, you'll be able to do it how you want, but now this is about us. So please subordinate your your particular immediate plan to the good of the group. Do you think- And that's great. And um, we also like, I think we appreciate that, you know, free spirits have to soar and uh, and there's something special about making room as a society for, for a little bit of uh, eccentricity. Do you think that this is something uh, relating oh, to yeah. adolescence, <laughs> to a certain adolescent male at an age, you know, where where they really have a... No, a... I would disagree for this reason. I think what struck me when Jeremy was talking was his emphasis on the rabbis being moderate. Yeah. And the first mission in Perkei Avot, the first thing that is said is, you should be moderate in judgment, which we often understand in the legal sense, but maybe it's meant in the social sense as well, that we have to conduct ourselves moderately, not veer too much to one extreme or the other. All right. So with that, we want to we want to just make a a subtle transition to what is admittedly the the largest portion of uh, this portion. Uh, but before that, we have Birkat Kohanim. So I'm going to turn to our resident Kohen here. All right. This is the sandwich. Me placing the name. We've talked about it before. But uh, again, take us into the drama here, the, the placing of, of God's name on the people and, and your channeling of the blessing. Uh, the Kohanim are, are, are channeling God's blessing to the people. Um, and how does it work? Just the, the fact that we, uh, first of all, I appreciate also the vocabulary lesson, which is now a word that I will use. And, uh, and Ta'alat Suez, there's, there's, speaking of like, that's the canal, right? The Suez right. Canal. So, Lita'el, good, good to know. Um, and here we are just a couple of days after Shavuot, and because I'm on sabbatical, like my, at my conservative synagogue, we don't do Gerkarakoanim, like probably the 99% of conservative synagogues, but I'm on sabbatical, so I went to a couple of Orthodox synagogues and I got to recite the blessing when I was in Israel for Pesach. I got to recite the blessing, and it was, it is really, it's not that I legit think 
that, you know, God expects my caste, my familial caste, we have a power of blessing that the rest of you don't have. That, that doesn't really make a ton of sense to me, but that feeling that you get when you go up there and you you have to you say the blessing, you sanctified us with Aaronite holiness. You commanded us to bless the people of Israel with love. And I just, I have that feeling summon up my love and beneficence and say, and it's really, it is a super high. It really is every time I do it, a super high moment. Uh, and, I, and I just sort of get in touch with my best wishes for people. So what we have here is this, I think of it, it's not exactly a haiku, but it's like a haiku, three lines, three words, five words, seven words, um, 60 letters in all. Uh, and, and Aaron is supposed to, he, he, he raised his hands, he said the blessing on the people. Um, interestingly, we talked before the show began, it's a little hard to know what the chronology is back at the end of Exodus, back at the beginning of Leviticus. And again, now we're talking about different acts that were done to dedicate the tabernacle. The way the Mepharshim, at least most of them, the Bible commentators put it together, what we have is something like the following. What we saw back in, in Leviticus 9, when Nadav and Avihu have the zapping in, incident, um, that, that what happened, that was the eighth day of the dedication of the tabernacle, but it was the first day of the month of Nisan. Aaron raises his hand and does the blessing. The divine presence becomes visible. The fire comes out and eats the sacrifices, but then unfortunately comes and, and consumes Nadav and Abihu too. The Rashi and Ibn Ezra, the commentators say, okay, that's where we are now. When his gifts begin here in Numbers chapter 7, we're, we're on that day. So when it says Birkat HaKohanim at the end of number 6, and then begins with the gift on number 7, there's a nice, um, it, it fits the uh, narrative back from Leviticus. Birkat HaKohanim, then the dedication of the, then the dedication of the altar, and that's what we have so here too. What I would add here is that in Bamidbar and Parshat Naso, Birkat Konim comes after the discussion of the Nazir. And the Nazir rep is, represents a kind of zeal, what we might say perhaps more colloquially is passion. And passionate love at that high level cannot endure. What you need is some kind of moderated love. And the Kohen, in the blessing, as it comes to us in Parshat Naso, is a tempering influence on the Nazir and then allows the gifts to take place. And the striking feature about the gifts is that each prince brings exactly the same thing. The only thing that changes is the name. All right, before we get into that, I just I just need to review the chronology here because we we have the the that the dedication of the sanctuary which took place uh, back in the book of Ayikra. And we know that on the eighth day of the dedication, a terrible catastrophe happened where Nadav and Avihu were incinerated. And then the Torah tells us here that it's Biyom Kalot Moshe, it's the day that uh, the, the uh, 
the completion of the sanctuary dedication. So we have, let's just move like frame by frame here. Uh, the, the sanctuary is dedicated. We know that the sanctuary was dedicated on uh, the first, the, the, the first of Nisan. Um, the eighth day then is the first of Nisan. That's a day of a catastrophe. Uh, the first gift on the first day of the gifts is the gift of Nachshon ben Amidav. So I want to to ask you just to 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 give me a little sermon here about Nachshon. What what's what would be the task of Nachshon on the first day of giving, knowing that a terrible event, a catastrophe has happened where everything that was supposed to be great uh, kind of fell apart uh, because of the the strange offering of Navdavani Hudi, their incineration. So there's a there's a a real sense of um, awe and also fear among the people. What's I mean we could say it's Nachshon is the first uh, presenter, but maybe this task would be to all the presenters. So let's talk about this. I'm going to turn to you, Jeremy, about this. Um, wait, can I ask you one, one question yeah. also? I'm trying to remember. Uh, um, Aaron's wife, Elisheva, is she Nachshon's sister? There you go. Yeah, she's she's Nachshon's sister, right. So, so, so Nachshon is, in addition to being the prince of Yehuda, he's also the uncle. He's the uncle of the two deceased priestlies. Wow, I you know I forgot about that, and I, I hope I think that's right, but I'm I'm I don't exactly know. I think that Elisheva is is Baraminadav. That's correct. But, okay, so it that makes it even more intense. Well, what what does everybody know about Nachshon? They they know that that famous piece of midrash that that when the people were too scared to you asked for a sermon so i'm going to come up with one please when the people were too scared to enter into the raging seas of yamsuf and they thought they were going to drown you know nachshon goes acharai you know after me here we go and we can do this and um and if if that's the case then you would be tempted to bring a little bit of that midrashic theme to this one which is there are there are moments in which it looks like we're trapped and we cannot go forward and and you know he's going to come along and say we've planned for this um, you know god has thrown us a tremendous curveball but we're still going to hew to the path then maybe this relates to the whole um, this whole thing we have been talking about uh, excessive zeal or halachic regularity, maybe maybe Nadav and Avihu are Nazarites, maybe they are prophets, maybe they are zealots. Uh, zealots. And then Nachshon comes back to rabbinic moderation and says, guys, you got a mitzvah. This is what we plan. Got, I've got a, a hundred... I've got a 70 shekel silver Mizrak. I've got a 10 gold uh, shekel uh, spoon, and I'm filled it with incense, and we're doing what we plan. We're all frozen so here. What, what's interesting here is 
how different pieces of the Torah come together. What's interesting is how different pieces of the Torah come together. So we recall Nachshon from Parshat the Midbar. He is the chieftain of Yehuda, which is the largest tribe, but is also the tribe that leads the Israelites in their march in the wilderness, because Judah is in front, um, flanked, I think, by Yisachar and Zvulun. And so Nachshon is the leader. As Jeremy mentioned, he's also a quasi-mourner. And what struck me, Jeremy, when you were talking about perhaps Nadav and Avihu being zealots, is we know from elsewhere that they did not have children. You know, they were not married. So that also goes in with the, the zealot. You know, perhaps someone thinking in modern terms that the line ends with me because I am the gift of God. And the Torah is saying maybe not so fast. And um, they are eliminated. But there is, you know, I was thinking when you brought up Nadav and Avihu that it's hard to imagine how the Israelites knew actually what happened to them, right? Because the image that we have is they're in the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest can go in, not even the, a regular priest. And so how would the Israelites even hear of this well, they, tragedy? They weren't, they weren't in the Holy of Holies. They were, they were bringing their incense pans from outside to to the holy area, and the fire went out of. So this uh, is a fire of the altar, right? Exactly. That's in the chatzer. Yes, the fire is ignited and comes out and burns them. In addition to that, okay. So, what is necessary then? And in fact, one of the things that Shiva does is it is an attempt to restore order. Indeed, indeed. And nothing could be more ordered than this list of gifts, which, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, goes on longer than any other chapter in the Torah. Right. And it, it, I guess it functions then as a transition. I mean, we have 12 tribes and we have 12 days. You know, it would be great if we had seven or eight or, you know, th those are, you know, other symbolic numbers. But 12, obviously, is, is the archetypal symbolic number for, for tribes. Uh, so we, we, we move through a whole cycle of them. Uh, which obviously would include a Shabbat, uh, but we've we've remarked, I think, in the past about the the regularity of the the passage. The passage has a certain music to it. All you need to do is learn the basic trope of it and and just uh, substitute uh, the name of a, a tribal chieftain on on each successive day. Um, the music, I think, the music itself lends some meaning to this. It's a song. It's a. It's a. And and the song, at least to me, suggests some joy. That, that well, as Sherry Lewis would say, this is the song that never ends. <laughs> but it. But it does. And uh, so it, did it her. It feels I can't that way. It. It, it, it does, it's not ever never ending. It just feels that way. It feels that way. But okay. So so we're we're there is an arc to this song. That you you kind of get to somewhere you know around the sixth or seventh day, that is after having said you know you know and and you're chanting it and and you would chant it much better than I just did obviously, but but there's music to it. The music is a song. The song conveys some joy as any regular 
uh, chorus to any song does. And the fact that you do it 12 times at least reminds me of the, cert of the same experience that you would have with Echad Mi Odea, which is at least 12 stanzas, 13 stanzas, more, right? And Chad Gadya, also a similar number of stanzas. Of course, the words are different, but, but we sing the melody and we delight in it. And, and I think that you know, given this moment in the book of Bamidbar, we're, we're transitioning, I guess, from this catastrophe to a sense that we are moving and we're going to move. And as we know, things are going to really go downhill from here. So, so I, I'm going to suggest that the, the climax of this whole uh, you know, chapter really is the last verse of the Parsha. Jeremy, you want to speak to the last verse of the Parsha for a second, which, which really tells us something extraordinary has just happened here. So, and that will be a good way to, to, to culminate our, our talk here. Culminate. So, so the, the Parsha ends uh, after all of these, after the, you know, the entire uh, collection of all the gifts. And, you know, it's, 12 silver bowls and 12 silver basins and 12 gold ladles. And, and there's 130 uh, is the weight of the bowls and 70 is the weight of the basins. And then the total silver comes to 2,400 sanctuary shekels and 120 gold ladles and all the incense and all the animals and the bulls and the rams and the lambs. And uh, so then, then it tells us what's, what's the tabernacle for. And so, Numbers, number seven, longest chapter in the Humash. Numbers chapter seven, verse 89. That's a lot of verses. 89. Moshe el Ohel Moed. And when Moses would come into the, into the tent of meeting, Lidaberito, to speak with him, capital H, him, God. Vaishma et hako midaber elav me'al hakaporet. And he would hear the voice speaking to him from above the cover of the ark, Asher al-Aron Haidut, mi ben from between the two cherub statues, Vaidaber Elav. And he would speak to him. Hebrews a little hard with the he, 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 and you don't you never know exactly who he is. But there's a the word um, Moses Vaishma et Hakol, Moses hears the voice Midaber, it's spelled in a slightly different way than you expect. And you have to kind of pay attention. It's, it's, it's just a dot, but it's an important dot. Um, there's a dagesh, a dot in the dalad. Uh, in uh, modern Hebrew, you know, it's, it's not even like bet vet or pay fe. It doesn't affect even Ashkenazi with the taf and the saf. It, it doesn't affect, uh, we're not accustomed to seeing a dot in the dalad, although in ancient times it, it meant something. Um, but we don't, for the word midaber, for, for God speaking, uh, we wouldn't have a delegation to Dalit. And so why is there one? So Rashi says that the, Rashi explains this odd spelling by saying that midaber means mitdaber, uh, which is grammatically sensible, meaning that God was speaking to himself. So God, Moses hears the speed, hears the, the voice of God, midaber elav, it doesn't mean speaking to Moses, it means speaking to himself. Um, God is just Godding, you know. God is is meditating on, on divinity itself, and then and so the revelation that Moses is portrayed here in this verse, 
the revelation that Moses is portrayed to be receiving when he goes into the Ohel Moed is like overhearing God speaking to himself. And I just think that this is a tremendously interesting, um, spiritually, theologically reflective. It's not, it's not just that God from heaven says, don't eat pork. Um, it's that God is, is, you know, a spiritual being that is reflective, that is, it's like eternity and, and infinity reflecting in on itself. And Moses, to be the, to be the ultimate um, uh, spiritually perceptive prophetic figure, is to hear infinity speak to itself. I find that pretty poetic. So what it makes of the gifts then is that it restores God's place in the world, which is in the Kodesh Kodeshim. And so after the great tragedy with Nadav Navihu, when we might think that God has abandoned us as Israelites, we hear that God is still with us. So I want to I want to just take a, a different look at this and say that that if 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 at this moment Moses is hearing God's internal conversation, that that means that something has there's a disconnect, would you say, between God and Moses at this point? It's that God is not speaking directly to Moses. That that if Moses is overhearing God's internal conversation, there is a dip here in the relationship. I can't help but think that. And that and that is as lovely as it is, you know, theologically to think of of uh, you know the 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 human being being that perceptive to hear the uh, the reverberation of the internal divine monologue. I kind of want I kind of want them to be speaking to each other. I don't want them not to be speaking to each other. I want this relationship, you know. And and of course, I mean, what it suggests is that this relationship goes through different phases, as 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 every relationship does. Obviously, I, I don't. I don't. You know, maybe this is the, uh, you know, we've had this conversation over the years in different ways in the past. There's a, there's a way in which, like, I really incline to mysticism in a way that doesn't speak to you in the same way. Um, there's a great, great, great Midrash in, in Shemot Rabbah that uh, just, you know, having you just been up in the Galil, it's, it's I don't know that it's speaking Davka about, about Rosh Hanikra, but it could be. There's a, there's a Midrash in, in Shemot Rabbah that, that says that, like this. Sometimes it says Vayidaber Moshe El Adonai, and sometimes it says Vayidaber Adonai Moshe. And Lamad, what's this like? It's like a cave by the ocean. Sometimes the ocean water surges in and fills the cave, and sometimes the cave water surges back out and enters the ocean. And the one goes in, and the one goes out. And after a while, you cannot determine which is the cave water and which is the ocean water. Like it's it's the it's the um, divine mind and the human mind kind of flowing together. And so this, on a mystical level, this kind of speaks to me like that, that, that it's not, I do not, I would not think of this as a diminishment because it's like indirect. I would think of it as a, a, a kind of a mystical participation um, that's, that's maybe even, you know, it's certainly no less direct. A fascinating, fascinating set of images and a fascinating conversation about this truly, truly amazing Parsha filled with so much material and so many verses, so much thing. You'll probably spend a lot of time listening to it in Shul if you are there this Shabbat. On behalf of my good friends, Barry Bradbury Chester, Robert German Kalanowski, Shalom from Jerusalem, from, from Israel. Thank you.